Welcome to episode six of Society 2.0. Before we get started, I just want to say you can reach us at SocietyWire on Twitter or SocietyWire on Instagram. You can also email me, bob at societywire.net. Love to get your feedback or hear about ideas on who I might interview next. Uh, it's always good to hear from people and, and helps us evolve as a podcast and, and get better at what we do. Today's going to be pretty exciting. We're going to interview Callum Chase. Callum has participated in multiple books and is the author of multiple books. Uh, the primary ones are Surviving AI and his most recent book, which is called The Economic Singularity. Now, he's got an interesting perspective on AI and he's one of the main drivers out there who are really creating the dialogue about how do we survive this coming economic singularity? And for a lot of people, they're like, well, what the heck is an economic singularity? Well, the, the primary definition is that at some point, the growth of artificial intelligence will hit some tipping point. It will become so advanced and be able to do all of the jobs or most of the jobs that we do today, and that that will completely reshape the economy in such a way that we'll have accelerated growth, but at the same time, you know, many, many people will be out of work and we have to figure out how we alter our economy significantly. You know, is it, is it universal basic income or is it some other mechanism yet undiscovered? And today we talk about all of those things and, and it's a really interesting conversation. Uh, Calm's also working on a new book that should be out in January. It's kind of a collaboration effort, but I, I highly encourage you to check out his books uh, if you're at all serious about where AI is going and how it might impact you uh, or the people you love, or just in general, just interested in you know how the world might look in 10 or 20 years, you know what's really interesting is right now there are 7 billion people in the world, a little bit more than 7 billion. And by 2038, the estimate is about 10 billion people, 10 billion people. So if things keep progressing they w- the way they are, and artificial intelligence becomes artificial general intelligence, which basically they can do any tasks that we can do. Um, and then, then if we go even further and say artificial super intelligence, where we basically get into uh, Skynet, uh, maybe, and hopefully a benevolent Skynet. But if you look at just how we might look with 10 billion people on the world with Artificial intelligence taking over many of the jobs that we have. Yes, there will be jobs created for people, but there will be a large swath of people who are unemployable. And that's going to create a challenge for everyone. Uh, you know, not just the Western civilizations, but third world countries that are already struggling to, to make a place in the world and, and catch up are going to find it even more difficult. And how do we address that? I mean, how, how do we, can we, you know, we can't leave people behind, but at the same time, every country is going to have their own struggles. So Callum talks about a lot of these topics and this is, these are things that are very interesting to me. And I would love to get your feedback on what you think about this interview and his conversations with other people and his books and his, and just basically your overall comments on AI and the potential of an economic singularity and how we might solve it. Cause, uh, I think it's a discussion we all need to start having. It's, it's not that far off in the future than we might think there's are advances every day. I was just reading an article 
around uh, Google's Alpha Zero, uh, the Deep Mind project, and they say it's starting to show a sense of subtle intuition in how it learns and creates new uh, moves in different games that it learns, moves that they've not seen before, and that's an interesting model. Where will that go? How how sophisticated or intuitive might it get? And then last year uh, in Australia, Toby Walsh, who was part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, said that you know within 50 years, artificial intelligence might be able to map or at least match our creativity or emotional sense. Now, that might sound like science fiction, but where we are today with some of our technologies would probably feel like science fiction 50 years ago. So just something to keep in mind. And I would say, do some research on it, read up on it. If there's somebody else you think I can interview that can go deeper into this, let me know. I'd love to have that conversation. Uh, but enough of me gabbing away. Let's get into the interview with Callum. All right. I'd like to introduce Callum Chase, author of Surviving AI and the Economic Singularity. He's also well-known as a futurist and speaker. Welcome, Callum. Thank you very much, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. I really look forward to speaking with you. I, I just finished The Economic Singularity, and there's so many things that I'd love to talk about, but in the interest of time, I really wanted to kind of deep dive into artificial general intelligence and super intelligence, and, and even further into that, uh, what the potential outcomes are going to be. I mean, you talk a lot about that in, in the book. And while there are people in general talking about artificial intelligence and how it can be applied to business, I think there's really only a handful of people kind of waving the flag and saying, hey, we really need to start thinking about the outcomes of the future and what this might look like in education. And more importantly, what you, you address a lot or what you speak a lot about is the job market and, and what it's going to look like in the future. Sure. So um, artificial intelligence is our most powerful technology, and it's going to produce, I think and hope, some really wonderful outcomes and also some big challenges. And as we um, go through the next few decades, the, 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 the potential upside, the potential downside changes. So right now we're struggling with uh, how we deal with privacy and with bias and with transparency. And those are all, all important issues. Uh, a little further ahead, I think probably a generation, there's the possibility that we will get widespread, massive technological unemployment. So, you know, maybe a half of the population will simply become unemployable, which is a, you know, a huge change. I think it could have tremendous, uh, tremendous upside outcome, but it raises challenges. And then again, beyond that, and again, possibly a generation beyond that, so two generations from now, we're likely, we, nobody knows this for sure, but we're likely to create an artificial general intelligence that's an AI with all the cognitive abilities of an adult human. And because machines can be improved and they currently are being improved, uh, they're doubling in performance every 18 months, because they can be improved, this, this AGI will become a super intelligence and it will quickly become much, much smarter than the cleverest human. That is going to be, if it happens, the most important thing ever to happen to humanity. Quite likely, we will either go extinct or we will become godlike in the sense of the ancient Greek gods rather than uh, the sort of Abrahamic gods. So, 
yeah, we should be thinking about all of these things at all of these stages. And, and each of them is such a big subject that you have to focus, really. I have latterly chosen to focus on the, on the job future. Uh, and that's mainly because the other, the other issues, I think, are being reasonably sensibly addressed already. So superintelligence is being addressed by four existential risk organizations, um, the Future of Humanity Institute and uh, the Center for the Study of Existential Risks here in the UK, and MIRI and the Future of Life Institute in the States. Uh, and privacy, bias, and transparency are being studied by a whole host of people all over the place. The jobs debate is, I think, not being well done. Um, it, you, it, initially, people said, oh, crikey, robots are going to take, take all our jobs, everybody run for the hills. And then there was a backlash against that. And now the conventional wisdom is machines will create some churn, there will be some job losses, but lots of new jobs will be created, so that'll be okay, and humans will carry on doing jobs forever. That might be true, but I think there's a very good chance it's not true, and we need to think carefully about what happens if it's not true, and we're not doing that. Um, people tend to say, oh, universal basic income is the solution. Well, I don't think it is, and beyond that, there's a great deal of thinking which isn't being done. So that, that's where I focus, and that's what, as you say, the book, The Economic Singularity, is is all about. Yeah, and Paul Doherty and James Wilson talk a lot about how we're, there's going to be like the synergy of human and machine, and while there will be jobs lost, there will be jobs created as well. Uh, I'm a little less optimistic. I, I do think there will be synergies in the early stages, but at some point there will be an AGI develop where there it's that iceberg effect you mentioned in in one of your talks and 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 in the book about how we think on the legal aspect we I think you had an example of of uh junior lawyers where they were educating the AIs to be able to go through documents but at some point they won't be needed anymore and yeah, yeah that's the part that becomes scary and 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 even in the educational system, there's there's books out about how, how how we can revamp the education process. Sir Ken Robinson speaks all the time about how the educational systems need to be revamped. But I don't know if at some point we're at this point of no return on can we educate seven billion people and, and, and enough to be able to have a jobs that are will be meaningful. I mean, I. I know that, that people talk about universe, universal basic income. As you said, there's a lot of challenges with that. But, you know, at some point we have to figure out how, how will seven or at this, it's to say that's 20 years from now, be about 10 billion people on the planet. What do we do with it? What is everyone doing at that point? <laughs> just writing music and writing books? It's just, it would be a great utopian feel, but Kevin Kelly, and you mentioned this also, is his protopian approach seems to be one we need to focus on, but also to not ignore the dangers that are coming. Sure. So I met Paul Doherty, who's um, a senior chat with Accenture at a conference recently, and I poked him with some sharp sticks and said, <laughs> come on, Paul, uh, there's clearly going to be a lot of churn, which is what you address in your very good book. I've read his book. It is very good. Uh, but look a little further ahead. Look a generation ahead. Do you really think that there's always going to be jobs for humans. And he um, he'd probably hate me for saying this in public, but he said, well, actually, that far out, we don't know. You know, it, it, is, it is possible we could get technological unemployment. A lot of this does boil down to timing. 
most people, when they say things like um, you know, that machines are going to just carry on, uh, sorry, automation will create new jobs, they're really only thinking five to ten years ahead, which is fair enough. That's as far ahead as most businesses need to plan and as far ahead as most of us can think about in our own lives, you know, with any kind of practical reality. But further ahead than that, it's very uncertain. And I think we should be content, we should planning, we should be doing some thinking about planning for the contingency that in a generation, half the population or more is unemployable. And so that's, that's where I focus. Um, you mentioned education and clearly in the shorter term, when machines take over some jobs and people need to be retrained, then there's a demand for retraining. Now, you know, it's very clear that's going to happen in the next few years, and it might take a decade, but in the next few years, we're going to have self-driving cars taking over the driving job from professional drivers. And that's a lot of people. That's 5 million people in the US and another 5 million people whose jobs depend on those 5 million. So it's a lot of people. Um, Google Duplex shows that call centers are not going to need as many people in the medium term. Uh, Amazon Go shows that retail is the same and Amazon is going to automate its warehouses increasingly. So there's going to be churn in jobs and we're going to have to retrain people. That, that I think, is hard to deny. So can the education and the retraining system cope? Well, probably not. Can we reform it? Again, probably not. You mentioned Ken Robinson. He's been saying sensible things about the education system for decades, I'm sure, certainly a lot of years. And the education system is really good that resisting reform. However, uh, why do you think that is? I, I, I hate to interrupt, but I've been curious about that as well. Why? Why? Oh, because it's a very big, uh, it's a very big infrastructure, very big organization, uh, full of very smart people. You know, teachers are not fools. And um, they have very strong views about how things should be done. They tend to be a bit left wing and they don't like being told what to do by central government. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a great big blob with a lot of inertia. However, I think there's something that is going to change them, and they don't, they're not seeing it coming. I think very few people are aware of what's coming, and that is uh, AI. Because I think in a decade, or certainly two decades, we're all going to have AI tutors. We're going to have our digital assistants know a lot, everything, about what we know in a, you know, in a particular field, what we need to know next, and how we best learn it, what time of day it's best to give us the next lesson, what format we want the lesson in. I mean, there's, a, there's a lot of nonsense talked about people being kinetic or visual or auditory learners, but there are, people do learn things in different ways. And these AI uh, tutors will know the best way to teach us, and they will deliver information to us in the best way. So everybody will have a one-to-one -one relationship with their teacher, which is something that almost nobody has now. And these teachers will be better than any human teacher has been in the past. I don't think that removes the need for human teachers altogether, although I suspect it will reduce it in, in, the, in the longer term. So I think education is going to get revolutionized despite itself, despite and, and, and no thanks to any help by any politicians. It's just going to happen through the technology. And that we, we need that to happen because otherwise all this massive amount of retraining that the job churn will, will create um, probably can't happen. Yeah, I think the, the term homeschooling will take on a whole new, <laughs> whole new definition when you have the ability to have a university-level degree from your own personal assistant. Exactly so, yeah. It's going to be really interesting. But it, 
You mentioned a lot. I, I've heard you speak on on a couple different in a couple different venues, and and you mentioned the Star Trek economy. Mm. And I'm always fascinated that really the only way it it seems that universal basic income can even remotely work is if we move towards the Star Trek economy. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about your definition of how that works? Yeah, sure. So this is the argument that, you know, cast your mind forward 30 years, more than half the population is unemployable because machines can do pretty much everything that humans do for money. That doesn't mean that humans are irrelevant because the machines aren't conscious. They don't have a purpose. We have purpose and we can appreciate the universe. And that's a, that's an important role. But we can't do anything for money because machines can do um, anything we can do cheaper, better and faster. That won't apply to everybody. And we will need humans to take important decisions in uh, organizations and countries for a long time to come. But for most people, unemployability lies ahead. So just just, you know, make that assumption and, and go from there. So what do you do about that? Well, you have to separate income from jobs. It's no longer possible for people to earn the income they need by doing jobs. One way that's usually suggested to deal with that is universal basic income. And there's a huge problem with universal basic income right in the middle of its name, and that's basic. We have to do a lot better than giving people subsistence incomes. That would be completely unacceptable and, and a you know a hallmark of complete failure and, and probably wouldn't create sustainable societies. So we have to somehow make everybody rich while they're not doing jobs. And I think the only way to do that is to make everything that you need for a really good standard of living, you know, good middle-class American standard of living, nearly free. Now, it sounds completely crazy, but it's it's quite achievable, I think. In fact, I think it's possibly inevitable. Um, think about the music industry. When I was young, certainly, Bob, you look quite a youngster, so you may not remember this, but when no, I was... I'm not too far from you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so when we were young then... Um, it was impossible for even a rich person to be able to listen to all the music that they might want to. Uh, you'd, you'd have to build an, you know, an unbelievably big record collection and then later a CD collection, and it just wasn't doable. Now, my 17-year-old son can listen to whatever music he likes, whenever he likes, and it costs me £10 a month. So the music industry has been dematerialized and close to demonetized. And I think that's achievable across most of the economy, given two things. One is we take humans out of the production process, and two, we take the energy cost out of the production process. And the cost of uh, solar cells is on an exponentially declining cost curve. So that's doable. Not going to happen tomorrow or the next five years, but in the next 20 to 30 years, it looks doable. So if we can demonetize, mostly dematerialize and demonetize the economy, everything that you need for a really good standard of living becomes nearly free. The remaining people who are working and the people with assets are going to have to pay taxes to cover everybody else. There's, just, there's no other way to um, to pay people. It has to be a, it has to be a transfer. But the payments can be non-punitive, can be you know very easily affordable. Um, so I think that is probably the only way to restructure our economies if we are going to have full-on technological unemployment. Um, there's very few people talking about this at the moment. Most people don't really get as far as thinking that technological unemployment is possible. And those who do mostly think, oh, well, UBI will sort it out. And they don't think about the problems of UBI. UBI has, come a, has become a bit of a religion. Uh, and you know, people don't like 
hearing criticisms about it, my most responded to blog post was about the problems of UBI. I got hundreds of thousands of people telling me, uh, it was very funny, um, telling me what a blithering idiot I was because I couldn't see the obvious. Nobody actually argued with the, nobody sort of addressed the arguments, but they just were all convinced I was an idiot. Well, they're probably right, I probably am an idiot, but I think the arguments were sound. So this um, idea of the dematerialized, demonetized economy, that's the the economy of radical abundance, is what some people call it. Peter Diamandis and Ray Kurzweil, the founders of Singularity University, talk about that. Uh, and the Star Trek economy is just a fun... No, I love the name. I'm a Trek fan. so Yeah, everybody's a Trek fan. So, you know, it's, it's a fun uh, alternative name for it. Yeah, I, I look at that. I thought a lot about this when you when you when I read the book, and I, I thought you know a sharing economy. People talk about the sharing economy. I don't I don't really think that that works. Um, we you've mentioned before, and others have mentioned how, especially in the U.S. over here, socialism is is kind of demonized. So whether it would ever take a foothold would be very questionable. But I I think that there is an argument that could be made uh, for a a subscriptive economy. So you you brought up music. Well, you subscribe to that and you have access to it. So it's based on volume. That's how it's it's become cheap uh, because there are so many people who subscribe to it. So it, it's a it's a volume based model. So if if the world subscribes to a car service, a food service, essentially the government becomes um, the company store or large monopolies become the company store. It does lead to potential Orwellian creepiness relationships between the government and large entities because I don't know if any of those economies, which I, I do believe are, will eventually become necessary at some point, um, I, I, it could lead to, uh, I don't know, I, I, it's, it's hard to, I can't put my finger on it, but it's one of those things where it's just monopoly-based systems and it disincentivizes smaller group companies to get a foothold or, or even enter the market. Yeah, you, I think you, we want to avoid monopolies. Um, I, I totally agree. Yeah, and, and even also monopolies of government. Um, you know, the one thing we know about monopolies is that where you remove competition, you get... Um, no incentive to innovate, no incentive to bear down on costs, no incentive to improve levels of service, and you get lots of uh, you get lots of corruption. So monopolies and central government control tend to be pretty bad. And I don't think it's necessary. I don't think that we have to have the Star Trek economy in a socialist model or in a monopolistic capitalist model. Um, you know, I. I haven't worked out the details of this new economy. I'm not enough an economist to do that. And really all I'm doing is is pleading with other people who are better informed and better qualified than me to start on that work. Um, but socialism has failed wherever it's been introduced and its defendant its defenders say, well, that's because it's never been tried. Well Or done right, yeah. yeah they they may be right. Um, but I think there's an inherent problem with it. When you have a group of people who are making all the decisions on behalf of everybody else, you've then got a monopoly of control and then you get this lack of incentive to innovate and lots of ability for corruption. So I, I, I'm a strong believer in, in the market economy uh, and, you know, frankly, in capitalism. Capitalism is 
a terrible system, but it's by far better than anything else we've ever tried. The world, yeah, it's the best of the worst, essentially. It's the best of the worst, yeah. It's, 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 it's the worst thing except for everything else. And it's delivered a world which is a better world to be a human in today than it has ever been. And that's not only true for the people at the top, it's true for the people at the bottom. Um, if you yeah, I a, saw the charts that you, you, or, uh, you mentioned in one of your, in your uh, speaking engagements where over the past 200 years, we've just improved in so many areas, uh, whether it's health or poverty. Uh, and one of the things that worries me is that if we don't heed the warnings of people like you, that we could if, end up reversing some of that if we're not able to democratize some of the advances that AI can bring and they're just isolated to countries that have the capital. Yeah, and if, also if we don't recognize the benefits that have been generated, um, the current wave of populism is, is few, it, it, it wouldn't happen if people realize just how much better the world is now than it was, you know, 30, 40, 200, 1,000 years ago. There's a very, very good website called Our World in Data, uh, which was it, it, it building on the work of the late, great Hans Rosling, a, a Swedish statistician. And um, it has a lot of really good data about how the world has improved. The world can still and needs to get a great deal better, and I think it will in the coming decades. But we really ought to recognize how much better it is than it was. Uh, Stephen Pinker wrote a very good book called Enlightenment Now, uh, using the data from our world and data. And it's a very good starting place for anybody who, uh, who, who believes that we are in a, a world of terrible inequality. A lot of people do believe that. It simply isn't true. Um, so, you know, we're, we're in a good place now, and it can get a great deal better if we meet the challenges that AI produces. So... Are, are there any new uh, books you're working on right now? Yes. So uh, I have. So the fact that we don't know how to deal with uh, the potential for technological unemployment means we need to we need to study it. And there's a very smart AI researcher called Stuart Russell, uh, who literally wrote the book on AI, suggested a while ago that we should set up a series of think tanks around the world in which. Um, we should get science fiction writers and economists in a room and not let them out until they've come up with a solution. Well, I can't or at least a great book. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I can't do that, but I have set up a think tank uh, called the Economic Singularity Club. And we are publishing a book in January called Stories from 2045. It's a collection of 35 short stories. Uh, two thirds of them are positive and one third are dystopian uh, about what life is like written from a perspective of 2045. And there, there's some great stories in there. It's a, it's a good book. And we've got some stories written by an AI, which is good fun. Uh, we've got augmented reality covers. So you look, you cover, you, you, you direct your smartphone at the book cover and it will show you a constellation of little TV screens and you can click on them and get little short videos uh, popping up. So it's a good book and it's going to be uh, launched in January the, January the 22nd. And everybody should buy it. Yeah, I'll be I'll be one of them. <laughs> Good man. Any uh, speaking engagements coming up that the audience should know about? Well, if you're in Spain, uh, in Barcelona next Tuesday, uh, I'm doing a public gig uh, on Tuesday evening, which is arranged by Telefonica and I think La Vanguardia, uh, the, the leading Spanish, uh, leading Barcelona newspaper. Um, so th that's the next sort of public one I'm doing. Yeah. Well, I, I know we had a, a tight time limit. And I wish we had a lot more time because there's so many different things I'd like to dive into. 
but I really, really appreciate your time. And if there's anything I can do uh, to help out and, and get the message out, let me know. This is uh, my small contribution is just to get the conversation going in the general public to think about what the future might look like. I have kids like you, so I, it's really important to me that there's, there's something for them to look forward to and to work toward. Well, that, that's great. But what, what you're doing is what we all need to be doing. We, need, we all need to be continually updating and, and reinforming ourselves about what's, what's coming, thinking about what's coming, and trying to shake everybody else awake. Because, you know, our exponential, um, the, the exponential growth in our technology is already producing rapid change, but it's nothing compared to what's coming. And most people don't realize that. So you're doing a great job. Let's, you know, keep it up. Well, I appreciate your time, Calm, and I wish you the best of luck with the new book. Thanks, Bob. Good to be here. Thank you. So if you weren't thinking about AI and where this might go, um, man, this interview should spark some interest. I, you know, when we, when we talked about maybe half the world might be unemployable, that's a pretty scary concept. How would we support, how would the other half of the world support the half that can't be employable? It's highly unlikely that we could live in some utopian society where we could all just focus on the things that we love to do, write music, write poetry, uh, enjoy life, and let the robots run the world. Uh, we would really have to get to that Star Trek economy that Callum mentions. But I think that that's quite a ways off unless we had a drastic shift in mindset, especially with the surge of, of nationalism in, in many countries. Uh, there's a little bit of sense of isolation that people are, are, are wanting from the rest of the world for fear of, of other groups impacting their way of life or impacting their economy. And this is just a, impacting their economy on labor, just regular jobs or, or unable to participate at the level and that they need them to right out of the gate and that it just creates a bigger welfare system. And this is without any artificial intelligence causing a problem. If we have artificial intelligence added to the mix, the migration problems for many countries might get much worse. And how would they deal with that? I mean, again, we can't turn everyone away. We can't say, sorry, go figure this out on your own. I mean, in my opinion, it is always better to solve the problem at the source. And then this way, everyone gets brought up. Every, every nation rises instead of having people just mass leave places and try to go somewhere else to find an opportunity. There's just not going to be enough opportunity if you centralize everyone. We need to spread the opportunity out. AI gives us an opportunity to do that, but we really need to start addressing it now because it's going to come faster than we expect. Uh, there's just so much work being done in, in the field and it, we just can't ignore it anymore. So Thank you again, Callum. It was a great conversation. Uh, I look forward to everyone's feedback. Again, you can reach me at bob at societywire.net or on Twitter and Instagram at societywire. And as always, look forward to seeing you again.